You have to provide for the users the answer to the three fundamental questions that are where am I, where have I come from, and what's next. Welcome to Pixelate Radio on the web at getpixelated.com. That's get pixel the number eightedcom Now here's your host, Craig Shoemaker. Hey, welcome back to the show, and today we continue our series with Dr. Tobias Kamishke, where we're discussing the principles of user experience. In this show, we'll narrow down the focus and give you seven do's and don'ts of getting started with user-centered design. You're gonna learn how paying attention to the subtle details can greatly increase the satisfaction and utility of your software. Make sure to subscribe to the show and get each episode in the series by going to getpixelated.com. Sometimes there's just things you don't want to do. When the web was brand new and people started building web pages, people on their own, you'd go to some site and there would just be tons of animated GIFs. There'd be blinking things, flashing things. Basically, you could make a case study of some of these websites of just exactly what not to do. And then you have things like Office 2007, where the use of color and of animation is done right. So that the, the little orb up in the top left-hand corner the first time you open up uh, an Office 2007 program slightly and gently glows up at the top until you click on it and see how you want to interact with the control. So this shows about do's and don'ts, but we're framing it within seven things that you want to keep in mind. Those seven things are orientation, visual attention, visual structure and flow, scrolling and paging, we've all done a ton of that, good use of text, icons, and graphics. And Tobias is going to get into each one of those, not only telling us what we want to do, but also telling us what we might want to avoid. Well, Tobias, welcome back. Uh, we had a, a good time uh, last show talking about the history of user experience and kind of where everything has come from. And so what I wanted to do was give people an idea of where to go next. So we're going to be talking about seven ways that people can get started when they're doing a user-centered design. Why don't you kick us off by telling us about one of the first things that they'll encounter, and that is orientation. Right. Yeah, it's great to talk with you again, Craig. And I think now it's getting really interesting because now we go to the real um, gist of what um, user-centered design is all about, which is... Um, a lot about philosophy that we talked before, but also now when you develop a project, when you develop an application, what are the do's and don'ts? And I, I really think orientation is one of the cornerstones for a good um, screen design. And so it's basically about that you have to provide for the users of your product the answer to the three fundamental, almost spiritual questions that are where am I? Where have I come from? And what's next? So I guess these are like questions that, you know, pertain like to everything in life. But think about it in the context of uh, an application or a screen or a task flow that you may uh, be into. So where am I? Asks about on the current screen, what is the screen all about? Um, where are the things that I should put something into? Where are you know, the, the widgets, the UI elements where I should put some data in, what are the options that I can choose to actually carry out a function. So what's going on? Where am I? Then the next question was, where have I come from? So I am on the screen, but 
what came before? Why did I end up on this one screen here? Do I really understand where I've come from? Do I understand the context of this um, screen in the overall application? And the third one is obviously what's next. So if I understand what I can do here on the screen, uh, I can understand where I'm supposed to put something in and I see where the system may put some uh, information out. What's next? So what's my next step after maybe filling in some data into a form? And so this orientation basically enables a user to actually do his or her work efficiently and without wondering about, well, I have no idea where I, where I am currently in the system and I'm not even sure what I am supposed to do here. So it sounds almost trivial to answer these kind of three questions, but I think it's really key. And um, it's not always um, very easy. The nice thing about it is that if you think about it, a lot of navigation controls um, that are out there not only provide access and jumping points to other pages and contents, but at the same time, they serve as orientation landmarks. So they actually tell you also where you currently are. Think about breadcrumbs, for example, on web pages. Breadcrumbs are used to navigate back and forth, but at the same time, also their function is to show you where you currently are. So they provide you with the orientation of where you are, answering the question, where am I? But also, where have I come from, which is the the trail of the breadcrumb, and also um, what's next um, if that's on the screen. Another example would be, for example, the Outlook navigation bar, uh, which allows you to go to different uh, uh, content areas, but also at the same time shows you what is the, cur the current content area that you're actually in right now. So uh, when you're looking at executing this, is the goal that you should be able to take any screen at random and be able to answer all of these questions really concretely, or is that taking it too far? Um, actually, no. I think that's a that's a very good um, heuristic. If if you can make that happen for your users on every single screen to really answer these questions, you are in a very very good shape. And so the question is obviously, how do you achieve that? Because um, a lot of what we see are totally cluttered screens with a lot of data points in there, a lot of UI elements, a lot of uh, gloss that really make it hard to see, well, you know, what is signal, what is noise, what are the things that I actually should look at, and what is just like decoration. All that is um, contraproductive to this orientation, um, uh, Maxime. And so one of the things that um, really proved out to work very well is try to guide the user's visual attention. So stress what's important and stress what's not important. Group those elements together that belong together and separate those elements that do not belong together. And by that, you will see that the attention is automatically drawn to those elements that stick out. And they stick out because they are different from the rest. And ways to do that is, uh, for example, by use of color. So you may want to have some desaturated colors typically and darker colors in the background. Uh, you want to have a bright saturated colors to draw attention, um, almost like, you know, um, the bright yellow um, button or a bright red uh, flashing button that shows that there's something is, is going on here that is really important. Other things that work are, I just said blinking, 
blinking is probably the most powerful of all these. And blinking sometimes is a little bit used uh, too much. Blinking can really be drawing too much attention away from what you're trying to do. In the end, your screen will look like a Christmas tree. Yeah. And so <laughs> other things that work are um, orientation. So usually on, on screens that are typically horizontally um, aligned, you either have like horizontal things, whatever it is, text orientation or graphical elements that are aligned horizontally or vertically. So just putting in some other orientation here in an angle, that sticks out uh, very well. And so everything that helps to draw the attention, the visual attention of the users to the right elements is good. Because that helps to provide the orientation on, well, what, I, what am I supposed to do here? What are the relevant parts of my screen and what is just, you know, background and, um, and, and things that are not so important? Yeah, like making everything different shades of orange, probably a bad idea. Exactly. <laughs> if everything is orange and then, you know, uh, you have maybe a red uh, um, UI element in there, it'll, it will not stick out uh, very well. So it's, you know, really color, um, brightness, the weight, which is like um, the size, for example, of a control mm-hmm. um, can stick out, the length maybe. Relative white space, I would think, would be a big thing in this. Yes, exactly. And we, we, we know that intuitively, you know, when we want to stress something in an email, we may make the one word that we really want to emphasize, emphasize we make it bold so it sticks out. Or we, we underline it and, and again it sticks out. So these kind of principles, um, they work and uh, so they can be used to provide this orientation better. So we're talking about do's and don'ts. When, when people go wrong in this area, is it basically giving visual weight or visual importance to everything on the screen, even if it's not all of it has the same purpose and importance. Yes, exactly. I think it's mainly two reasons. One is people try to really push as much um, contents on one screen as possible for like good reasons, because they don't want users to uh, scroll or uh, they want to make it really everything inside in, in parallel. But the effect of that is that you have a really cluttered screen. And so many elements um, call for attention. And then the second uh, uh, thing I think that people oftentimes make wrong is that they want to make everything important, which is like a prototypical thing for all these websites that scream for attention where you have (laughs) marquee texts, going from left to right, and you have blinking elements right and left. And so it really doesn't work if you have more than like two or three things that really want to stick out. If there's too much, none of them will stick out. So you really have to think about what's the core elements that I really want to draw attention to them and then only treat them separate from the rest. But I mean, the number of elements is really um, important here. The more elements you have on your screen, the harder it is actually to you know show what's important and what not, and the more important it is to use these these special pop out techniques. Right, and that's that's hard because sometimes you're dealing with a domain where, like, I'm thinking, consider like an interface where a doctor has to do some data entry on a patient, and mm-hmm. obviously they need, they need it to be fast, and so they don't want to have to click through a number of different screens in order to get to you know, check marks on medication or something like that. 
Right, but just in because that's an interesting example. So let's say a physician in the hospital um, uses one of these IT systems to place an order for a patient or something, like ordering a an, an, uh, medication. So it's really important that he orders this medication for the right patient, right? Right. And so um, think about all the elements that have to be on the screen to make you know this a safe bed. It has to be the right patient information. It has to be like the right information on maybe allergies that the patient may have. There should be um, information on the drug, like, you know, if there's any drug dosing issues that are there or drug-drug interactions possibly with other drugs that the patient is using. So just looking at this shows you that there's a tons of, of really important information that have to be shown, let alone all the UI elements that you need to, you know, make the ordering happen. So that explains how quick a screen can be filled up with all the important things. But then how do you actually um, structure your, your screen? How do you really make uh, it clear what the um, important things are if all of them are so important? And it's really then about trying to, um, to organize your screen and, you know, design for a very good uh, screen flow. Well, you, you did consulting for a company with basically doing that same type yes. of thing, right? Yes. And I don't have the screens handy, but they pushed more and more and more to these kind of screens. So they, they, they needed to show for every single patient, like tons and tons of stuff, like everything from allergies, things like um, do not, re what do you call it, resurrect them? Oh, um, yeah, do not resuscitate. Yes, exactly. So, and they had to squeeze all these things in on, on a very limited screen, uh, screen real estate. So it was really cluttering things up. And it shows like, you know, the, the fine line between uh, simplicity on the one side, but also like the responsibility to show what has to be shown. So how did you end up coming to a solution? Was it just like the right type of labeling with many things being small? Yeah, that's uh, another very interesting topic for the do's and don'ts, which is what's better, text or icons. Mm. The nice thing about icons are that they usually save real estate. So a lot of these indicators that we had for a patient, we actually solved with icons because they consumed less real estate. So we could put more stuff on the screen. Um, but the downfall of the icons is that then most of the times not as straightforward as text because with text you can explain things and you can really you know translate text to different cultures and all that while an icon is an icon so uh, sometimes it takes a little bit longer to understand an icon than text obviously once you understood an icon uh, it's very easy to recognize it the next time around but uh, in this case um, icon was uh, was a feasible um, method to show these kind of data because they consumed less real estate. And then was the concept that if they hovered over it, they would get some sort of a an explanation as to what it was, or there's a legend somewhere that people exactly, can exactly. refer to. You have a tooltip that uh, for the beginning, when you know people are not familiar yet with uh, the icons perfectly, that they can actually you know um, gain the understanding about an icon by just hovering over. And I suppose you'd want to use charts and graphs and some of the other standard things in order to visualize the data as well, right? Yes. This is the big trend currently um, to move away from these epic tables with uh, numerical data in there 
and then just you know rely on the users to actually make sense of these data points towards um, data visualization techniques. So where you can actually see numerical data pictorially, which is much easier to interpret for for people. But also there, there are differences. There are um, visualization types that are easier to interpret and there are some that are harder to interpret. For example, one of the easiest ones are bar charts. Because if you think of a bar chart and you know whatever you want to show there, uh, maybe uh, sales per month over the year, so you have 12 bar charts, for example, the only thing you have to do there basically is to perceive and rate the height of these bars. So it's only one dimensional, you just look at the vertical axis. Um, the horizontal axis uh, doesn't really convey any meaning for the number because the bar chart has a fixed width usually. So that's pretty easy and has been shown in studies to be very easy because we are very good in uh, estimating and uh, rating and assessing heights. That's easy. What's really very hard to do is, for example, um, rating volume. So, for example, um, for all the friends of 3D pie charts, um, it's very hard to rate angles of a 2D chart, but it's really, really hard to, um, to rate a volume of a 3D pie chart or any voluminous um, thing out there, like, like um, a cube. So it's very hard to rate um, the size or the volume rather, of a cube, because now you don't only deal with one dimension, but with three dimensions. Or, for example, take bubble charts. Bubble charts are, you know, basically translating the area size to a numerical value, right? And it's really not trivial to, uh, to rate this very well if you don't have the real number also shown on your chart because people chronically underestimate the area of a, of a circle. And that's basically because the area grows quadratically with the radius, right? right? So you double the radius of the bubble and all of a sudden the area gets four times as big. <laughs> so it just shows if you handle more than one dimension, and one dimension would be, for example, the bar chart, it's, it's getting complicated and complex for for us and our brains to actually handle this kind of information alone. So um, that's why data visualization is a great thing. But within data visualization, there are visualization methods and types that are easier to understand and process and some that are harder. And it's good to, you know, kind of reflect on that. Right. Well, even with the, the one dimension, if you have a bar chart and you're not careful about what the scale is, you could look at yes. something to where it looks like, you know, the values are widely different when really maybe it's just like a point tenths of a percent or something yes. that, that separates them. Exactly. So this is, uh, you know, oftentimes um, uh, misused by, you know, uh, uh, ads and uh, other, you know, commercial purposes, you know, just no, to show you. they would never lie to us. <laughs> exactly. So, oh, the efficiency of this, uh, you know, medication is so great. You know, look at this chart here and then you look at the actual um, uh, scale of the chart and you see that there's hardly any difference <laughs> <laughs> between and after the treatment. Right. Yeah. So I think, you know, this is just things that, you know, you should really reflect upon and just just think about it. And, and um, there's also, um, you know, books about, you know, what's, what's, what should be done and how to best 
depict um, uh, charts and other visualization types. And so that's, that's a good thing to do. Do you know some of those book titles off the top of your head? Uh, there is um, from a guy who's called Cleveland, uh, a book called The Elements of Graphing Data. There is uh, Edward Tufte, who has a couple of books on uh, information, design information visualization. There is um, Stephen Few, and there's a guy, Colin Ware, I just read his book, it's called Information Visualization. It's really like um, trying to explain also why things are easier and some things are harder. So really like um, from a human factors perspective and some, you know, scientific backgrounds. So there's, there's tons of stuff around. And, you know, obviously um, there are things that from a human factors perspective are maybe not ideal, like 3D pie charts. But uh, obviously many people like 3D pie charts. So it's not, it's not my message that, you know, you're an, a bad person to use a 3D pie chart. <laughs> my message is just, just reflect upon what is the strength and what is the weakness of a 3D pie chart compared to other visualization forms. That's all. Right. Okay. That seems fair. I mean, yeah, anytime you're going you're gonna to put anything up on the screen, uh, you really need to question its purpose and, and if it's fulfilling that. So if, if you're doing some sort of, you know, medical or NASA type of thing, you know, you probably want to be as, as explicitly precise as possible. But if you're doing something that's a, a little less critical where people aren't going to die, um, exactly. you know, it might be more... Uh, it might be more amenable to, to doing some of the stuff that's um, a little more flashy, maybe. That's exactly it. So when people are designing visual structure and flow, what should they be thinking about? Well, one of the things that I, I've seen a lot is that people think about, well, here's my screen, here's you know um, the task that I want to have the user achieve on this screen. So what are my controls? And then they come up with like, you know, 20 controls, you know, including text labels and drop down menus and action buttons and all that. And then they just put them in, in a pretty random fashion. So it's like, oh, where do I have real estate left? Oh, here's some more, you know, real estate. <laughs> so let's, let's put my push button in here. And the end result of that is usually something that uh, really looks like, um, you know, a house after an earthquake where, um, there's not an apparent uh, structure in it. And that's bad for several reasons. One is you can measure that people need longer time to understand the screen if it's not organized well, just because they have to look around and understand what's going on. And the other reason is that you really want to guide the user. You not only want to have it aesthetically pleasing uh, in terms of you know symmetrical layout and all that stuff, but you want to guide them from the start to the finish within the same screen. And for that, um, there's stereotypical ways that you know, we look at screens and uh, you know, want to orient you know, our eyes on a screen. And that's basically from top to bottom and from left to right. And so um, that means you should really design for you know, the, the flow within a screen by having um, the submit buttons that really clear out and um, you know finalize um, your screen at the end of what's going on, and the end of what's going on should be at the bottom of the screen and not at the top of the screen. I hate that. 
Do you know what Excel does? You fill out a form and then like on SharePoint, there's some of these screens, you fill out a form and you have to scroll back up to the top to save. Yes, yes. And so um, one of the tricks um, to do that is to really um, think not in terms of the UI elements that you need, but also the sequence in which you need them. So what comes first, what comes second? You know, if you have a, a form, for example, where you want to ask, um, uh, for example, for an e-business um, solution, you want to ask um, persons, the person's address. So do you first ask about the name or do you first ask about the city that people live in? These kind of things. And if you have this sequence um, figured out, then you have to map it to the screen. And there, it's a good practice to basically use a grid-based design. So what you do is you divide your screen um, into areas by a grid. And most of you know, the, the programs out there allow you to, to apply a grid to it, where you actually can align controls and other UI elements to the grid so that um, you know, all the, for example, text labels may be left aligned to one of the grid lines. And then you have maybe one um, empty grid column to have some spacing before the next um, set of control um, controls are shown and they are again left aligned. So you have a really clear, understandable structure on your screen and that will yield um, consistency. And it has been shown that consistency actually improves um, the understandability and the readability of a UI. And that translates one-to-one -one, um, to quicker learning and um, you know, more uh, satisfaction with the UI also. Now, when you're looking at this, these type of concepts, how, how important are established conventions? Now, I'm bringing this up because I was working on a screen for an application a, a number of months back, and what I wanted to do was get people's address. And, you know, it just seems silly to me to have to request that people add in their city, state and zip code, because if you have <laughs> exactly. a zip code, you have the city and the state. So I, I reorganized the screen to where it started off by simply asking for the zip code. But then when you went to the next step in the entry form, I wanted to show that I had the right uh, city and then state. But then I realized, well, what if my data is wrong and they need to you know, the things are weird with cities like where Infragistics headquarters is at. You know, it could be Princeton, it could be East Windsor, it could be right. all kinds of stuff. So when you're dealing with these types of situations, even though you want to create a flow that might be easier on the user, how important is it to be uh, consistent with conventions that are already out there? Mm -hmm. Well, I think um, Obeying to conventions is not a bad thing in these kind of instances because think about it, how many times people order things online or have to fill in their personal data online. So it's an established uh, pattern that they also have um, in their head after doing this you know, for, for years. And so people expect certain things and just you know, um, tailoring your UI to these expectations is not a bad thing. Now having said that, Obviously, if you can avoid having users to fill in data that are not necessary, I think every user will appreciate that. Because I, I'm also oftentimes puzzled by, you know, they, they make me enter my, uh, my city, they make me enter my zip code, they make me enter my state. 
So you don't need all these three data points because the zip code totally defines the uh, state and to like 80% defines your city as well. Right. And so I think uh, both things uh, are relevant. Um, but um, in this respect, I think um, um, considering standards that are out there and that people follow um, is a good thing as long as the standards make any sense. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and I think um, these instances where you actually have to put in too many data um, items uh, get fewer and fewer out there because, you know, people just, you know, realize um, that they have to really um, only offer the essential input fields. Right. Okay. So as part of the, the structure and, and the flow, I guess you, you'll inevitably encounter times when you have more data that that appears on a form or on a screen and then you can show. So you're going to end up with dealing with your scrolling or paging or some of these types of things. Yes. You know, everybody's really familiar with this stuff, but, but start us off with some examples of, of how people might be doing it incorrectly. Well, the classic example is to using scroll bars too much. And that's usually um, using horizontal scroll bars. So, on web pages, I think everybody um, can live with the fact that you have to scroll somewhat vertically. But if you have to start narrowing in on what you actually want to see by using both a vertical and a horizontal scroll bar, then there's something fundamentally wrong with your design. <laughs> and so what, what I try to always do is ne never to use horizontal scroll bars. And obviously, there are instances uh, where you know you cannot really um, totally uh, avoid having horizontal scroll bars. For example, for data intense tables, where you have more columns than you actually can fit on one screen, and where there are tricks, you know, to make this more manageable. For example, by uh, fixing one, some of the columns that they don't scroll with you, and on all these things. But if you can avoid it, just avoid horizontal scroll bars, and really think about. When is the right time to transition from a vertical scroll bar to a paging mechanism? And to me, the boundary line there is as soon as the list that you have is no longer than three times the visible scroll area, then scrolling is still okay. But if the list is longer than three times the visible scroll area, then I would go to paging. So it is okay to scroll somewhat vertically, but it's not okay to scroll endlessly. And so if, for example, my, let's say it's a, it's a list box and the list box can show, let's say, five items without scrolling, I would say if there's more than 15 items, I would go to paging. And then in, for paging, the nice thing is that you can use your next and previous buttons. Here, my own rule is always, if it's up to five pages, I just use next and previous. If it's more than five pages, I also have this um, uh, jumping mechanism where you can actually directly jump to a, to a page. So rather than if you're on page two out of 25 to click uh, 23 times next, you know, you just offer a uh, text entry field and say, you know, give me the option to put in 23 and then jump directly there. Or do something like Google does, you know, visualize all the pages, the Google, the O's between the G and the second G. Right. Yeah, uh, it's, it's the number of pages, these kind of things. But these are all like, you know, things to, you know, think about to make life easier. Because if it's just a, sh if it's just a short list, there's no real purpose to have uh, paging. 
But if the scrolling would become excessive, then you then paging is a nice thing to have. Well, and that's the whole point in the end is just trying to make life easier for the people using our stuff. Yes, and realistically, you know, the applications out there, they rather get more complex than uh, simplistic just based on the number of data, all the integration stuff that we can do nowadays. And so I think the more important it is to really think about how can I structure the stuff that I want to show. Well, thanks again for spending time with us today. If you have specific questions that you would like to hear posed to Tobias, uh, send them to me. You can send them to cshoemaker at infragistics.com. If you want to find out more about Tobias, you can go to tobiask.net or you can go over to community.infragistics.com UX where he posts his information. Well, again, thanks a lot for checking this out. This is Craig Shoemaker, and I'll be talking to you soon. Pixelate Radio on the web at getpixelated.com. That's get, pixel, the number eight, ed.com. All right, user, copyright 2009. Infragistics. On the web at infragistics.com.